The worst day was when my husband got shot. Welcome to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. Centerpiece NY is a podcast that traces the lives of long-standing members of the Irish community in New York, many of whom we have come to know through a place called the New York Irish Centre in Queens. For our very first episode of Centerpiece NY, we will get to know Helen Ward, who has been living in Woodside in Queens for the better part of 60 years. Hello, Helen. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Welcome. I'm good. Welcome to 50th Street. Oh, very good, yeah. yeah. Come on upstairs. Up the steps? Yes. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Very Lovely good. spot. Lovely yeah, carpet thank here. Thanks. So you're still Please. well able for the stairs, are you, Helen? Yeah, so far. <laughs> <laughs> so far, so good, well, anyway. Yeah, right. Well, fair play to you, anyway. Uh, okay. And here we are on the landing. Yeah. Very good. And this is lovely. Yeah, this is thank lovely. You. Perfect. Thanks. Lovely spot. The world of New York extends far beyond Manhattan Island. To the east are Queens and Brooklyn, across the East River, two so-called outer boroughs, and beyond them Long Island, which is exactly what it says it is, Long. To the west, across the Hudson River, is New Jersey, another entire state, and to the south, Staten Island, another outer borough. Above Manhattan is the Bronx, which for some reason is never called an outer borough, and is the only bit of New York City on the North American mainland. And beyond there, as you move further north past Yonkers, New York blends into an abstraction called Upstate, with trees and mountains and apple orchards. I asked Helen a simple question, to tell me a little bit about her life in America since she got here, and it came naturally to her to just step through the various places and neighbourhoods where she's lived and worked, over the course of six decades. I left Ireland when I was 18. I came over in September of 1960. I came to my cousin's house in Bronxville, New York. My cousin owned grocery stores and I worked for them for two years. Then I went back to Ireland for a vacation for five weeks. And I came back and I lived with friends in Astoria, people from home beside me. And I worked in Stouffer's for one year. And then I went into the telephone company. I was a telephone operator for three or four years. And then I lived in Elmhurst. I moved to Elmhurst for a while. And then I met my husband in June 1964. We got married in June 1965. And we moved to 45th Street in Sunnyside, We lived there for about three years. Then we moved to Laurel Hill, and um, from there we moved to 50th Street in 1973, and we're still living here in 50th Street in Woodside. Most immigrants live in the city or in the outer boroughs, but just like the Russians and their dachas, many have a spot to get away to, especially during the hot summer months. The wards are no exception. We also have a home up in Monticello and we spend a lot of time up there. 
we used to go back and forth upstate a lot once I retired in, in 2008. And I still go back and forth with my daughter Kathleen mostly. And my son Michael, he goes up there a lot. Much of the strength of Brand Irish in this town is down to the solid and steady consistency of generation after generation of Irish that came here and contributed to the greatness of the city. Helen was a beneficiary of this reputation when she arrived as a teenager, but she in turn has herself passed the torch to new generations. I asked her if she felt if it had been to her advantage being an Irish immigrant. Yes, it was. I always got treated very well. I always did well with jobs. I'd never a problem with work. And I always used to say, you know, if you lived in New York, uh, there's always uh, a dollar to be made. You know, you'd never go, you know, hungry or anything because there was always opportunities to take advantage of if you wanted to. And there was always other Irish people that connected with you right away because you being Irish. Yes, yes. I had a lot of friends, you know. I had lived in the Bronx for six months and when I worked in the telephone company and uh, there was Irish girls up there and we used to go around to the dances and they'd come to my house and I'd go to their house and we always had a good time, yeah. It was great having an Irish president. You know, everybody was really loved it because all the people I knew then were all Irish and they were really, you know, they were really very happy and always interested in the Kennedy family. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. I don't remember the election so much, but I remember the day he got shot. I worked uh, for the telephone company and it came over that the president got shot and then we all got a half day we had to go home and uh, it was a very sad sad day in new york city because uh, nobody could believe it he was so young and you know such a nice family young family and his wife and everything everybody was so upset you know i never had any problem with anybody like when i worked in the telephone company I was only there a year or two years. The lady was Italian, she was my boss, and she promoted me to supervisor, junior supervisor. I have never any problems with anybody. As long as you did your work and you did what you're supposed to do, nobody bothered you. It was the English who gave Ireland its counties, would you believe? And every Irish person knows well which of the country's 32 counties they come from. The northern edge of County Longford, where Helen is from, is a very rural and poor part of Ireland, and life there was hard in the 1950s, especially for a little girl on a small farm being raised by her grandmother. She wasn't the most confident when she arrived in America, but through work and education, Helen gradually left the baggage of social class behind her and found her voice in the United States. When I first came out, I was a nervous wreck because back in Ireland, those people like doctors, lawyers, teachers, they always made uh, people that was below them, they looked down upon them. And like priests, everybody was so strict. You were afraid to talk. Like when I first came, I only spoke to people if they spoke to me because I was afraid. I was afraid I'd say the wrong thing, afraid I didn't have the right grammar, you know. 
and all of that. And then it wasn't until I went to Lehman's College and it took like psychology classes and a lot of classes that I felt comfortable with dealing with people and places. But up to that point, I used to be nervous wrecking, was always afraid I'd do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing or, you know, it was like a fear that was putting you back in Ireland with the way you were brought up and the teachers and priests and everybody, you know, that you had to deal with. I went to um, Bryan High School and I got the GED. I would tell everybody I skipped high school. <laughs> so, and, and then I went into LaGuardia and, and Lehman's. When the children got a little bigger, I started working for the Board of Ed in the schools, in the kitchens. They had a program where they were sending people to LaGuardia College for to get an associate degree to, to for management, for a management job. So I went, it was two and a half years, and I got my associate degree. And then I went to Lehman's and I got my bachelor's degree. And I became a manager of the food food school service for the, for the city schools and I worked there for almost 30 years and then I retired. Let's step back again into Helen's childhood in Ireland. It wasn't a pandemic, but it was an outbreak of disease when she was an infant that profoundly changed the course of her life. I grew up in Drumlish, County Longford. My father's name was Michael Riley and my mother's name Rose Smith Riley. When I was 11 months old, my mother died and uh, also my grandmother which was my mother's mother and her father, my grandfather. The three of them died in, in the same week. There was some epidemic going, like the uh, typhoid flu, and they all got it and they passed away. So my grandmother on my father's side raised me. When I was 10 years old, uh, my uncle in England, which was my father's brother, was very ill, so my father had to go over and take care of him. I lived with my grandmother. I went to Drumlish School. Then I went to uh, a school in Drumshambo, County Leitrim. When I was 18, I had a cousin who was um, Monsignor, and he was over in Ireland for a vacation, and he uh, advised me to come out here. So when he was going back, I came back with him. And I only planned on staying here for one year. I even had my passage booked to go back, and I just changed my mind, so I'm still here. The Monsignor gave Helen an early lesson on life in a much noisier jungle than Drumlish. New York is busy and complicated. Keep it simple, and you'll fit in better. I came uh, by plane with my, uh, my cousin. He was a Monsignor. Back in Ireland, they call me Ellie Rose, Ellen, Nellie, and all different names. So on the plane, my cousin said to me, uh, he said, when you go to America, we'll call you Helen, and that will eliminate all this, because they used to call me Ellie, Ellie Rose, Nellie, Helen, and every name back in Ireland. They used to give a certificate for religion, 
and I used to always get it either got the first second or the third cut you know I, I always got one but anyway um this one year was the cut and I didn't get it so my grandmother was very upset you know very upset that I didn't get it <laughs> yeah you can say a lot about your school experiences, but you probably didn't have the threat of violence from your teachers hanging over you as Helen did, day in, day out, like a roof about to collapse upon you, with painful slaps meted out without warning. Not the easiest environment for learning. If you didn't know, corporal punishment in Ireland's schools was a thing. It was finally outlawed in 1982. But somewhere deep inside Helen, the dread of those slaps lives on. You're brought up so strict in Ireland, and the teachers were really, really, really strict. I was in the fifth grade, and again, I was graded Gaelic. You said we could give you 104, we give it to you, you know, but anyway, I was better at Gaelic than I was in, in English. It was Gaelic compos uh, composition that we had to write. And there was a fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade together and was standing around a wall. And uh, my name was Evelyn O'Rahilly in Gaelic. My maiden name was Riley. And there was another girl by the name of uh, Betty Riley. And they had her as Evelyn O'Rahilly as well. So we both had the same name in Gaelic. So the teacher uh, said, called up Evelyn O'Rahilly. And I went up and I got two slaps for whatever. I had wrong a word or two, whatever, misspelled or whatever. Got two slaps. About ten children later, she called Evelyn O'Reilly again. And she looked at me, she says, come on up, you know. So I went up and I said to her, I was here before. So she said, you're lying. And she gave me two slaps for lying and two more slaps for whatever was wrong on the paper. So, of course, you know, you never tell, you know, when you go home because more likely, you know, to say you deserved it or whatever. But some of the neighbouring children met my grandmother. She was going up doing her shopping and they told her what happened to me. And anyway, she went up to the principal of the school and she said, you know, she said, you call my granddaughter a liar. She said, she doesn't lie. And she said, it's terrible, you know, the way you slapped her and you should, she should never do that. So anyway, then she went to the parish priest and she told him and he said, well, he said, I can't understand it. He said, because I went into the school last week and I asked the class to spell a word and she was the only one put up her hand and spelt it. And he said, that's, that shouldn't be. So then she took me out and sent me to another school in Drumshambo County Leitrim. Remember going to church, and we had to be at eight o'clock church on every Sunday. And if you turn your head, like one time I turned my head, and the next thing I got a prayer book on the back of my head, a belt from a prayer book on the back of my head. Sadly, other youngsters often fared far worse in the Irish school system. He was teaching his nephew and he had 11 children of his own. She said, oh my goodness, she said, what a mistake, she said, I made by letting my son go to his school. He beat the living life of him and he has left him with a nervous problem for the rest of his life. He, he can't, he couldn't function. Like, you know, he said he beat him so bad. 
In his book, The Corrections, author Jonathan Franzen writes, In the end, when you were falling into water, there was no solid thing to reach for but your children. I guess my wedding, that was a good day. And um, what really is, is a pleasure is I have three wonderful children. And they are so good to me. When my husband died, I mean, uh, Michael, he lived in um, Elmhurst at the time. And he used to come by every night and stay with me for a while. My daughter, Cathy, on the next block and Rosemary, and they, they were great. I said, I, I don't know what I have made it through without them because they were so good, like there wasn't a thing I needed that they didn't do, or they were always here, and Pat died sudden as well, and that was another shock. He had a heart attack, you know. The children grew up here. All three went to St. Sebastian's School. Rosemary went to St. Vincent Ferris High School, and then to Dominican College. Uh, Michael went to uh, St. John's High School, and then he went into uh, to become a carpenter, and uh, he's now a carpenter for the Board of Ed. And my youngest daughter, Kathy, she went to St. John's as well, and then she went to Pace University. She uh, became a teacher, and she's still teaching. We waited for grandchildren for a long time, and when I was in my 50s, I said, oh, I wish I had a grandchild, you know, and I used to say it would be great for Pat to have grandson, and uh, like if it was only 10, because my husband used to love planting trees and everything upstate, and he was always outside in the garden doing things, and I said, wouldn't he love to have a grandson around 10 to help him? Riley, Michael's daughter, Riley, she was the first, she was born in January, and she was, that was a great, you know, surprise and uh, joy. And then uh, Rosemary's was born in August. She was a girl as well. So, and I used to babysit a lot for them, you know, so in the beginning, so when they were little. And Rosemary used to always leave them here. And then sometimes went on vacation and just left the kids here and we took care of them. So, <laughs> and that was a big joy, yeah. In January 2020, we thought we might have already had our top global disaster story for the entire year, the terrible bushfires in Australia. Little did we know. It started in the middle of March. The kids said, you know, you don't go anywhere. They did the shopping. Uh, Rose, uh, Kathy and uh, Michael did all the grocery shopping and I didn't go to church, or well, then the church is closed down anyways, but um, I didn't go to no store and I stayed in the house, but I kept myself busy. I started spring cleaning, I did every room in the house. I cleaned windows, curtains, everything. So then after about two, three weeks of that, um, Kathy and I went up to Monticello. And of course I had to do the same thing there, clean the whole house, and I kept busy. And up there you could go out because like the houses are not, um, they're a distance apart. You could go out and you wouldn't be like, like meeting your neighbor face on, but uh, you could see them in the distance and wave to them. Up there, there was hardly any of the virus reported, not that much in the area that we were in. There was only like about 12 people that had it and then nobody that we knew had it. So we were able to go to the stores and, you know, and uh, we just stayed there for 
um, three weeks and then we came down, we came back to the city again and it was still pretty bad here so we went back up again and that's pretty much how we avoided it hopefully. And how were your spirits during all this business of a, a pandemic, which took us all by surprise? Yeah, I was, I'm not one, to, I, I don't get down. I always find something to keep myself busy. I sew and I was making masks and I knit and I crochet and I keep doing stuff all the time and it doesn't really bother me. It's just like, I worried that I get it and when, the most thing is, um, I worried when I used to hear of so many people dying, and that was very scary, and I was just so scared of getting it. I have a pretty busy life as it is because I keep myself very busy going here and there and everything, and I can also settle in the house just as well, you know, but I always find things to do. I keep busy with new recipes and different stuff, cooking and all of that. Do you have that uh, Netflix and all that, or do you just have regular television? Regular television, but my daughter has the ne Netflix, you know, she has it upstairs and she is in her bedroom, she has it. So she has movies and that. There's no end to it, you could be watching I know, forever. but I watch uh, General Hospital and I watch um, a few of the shows and then I watch Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune and, and I always look forward to that in the morning the price is right and stuff like that when I have the time I don't watch it every day but during when I had nothing else to do I would watch it you know so I kept my mind busy yeah in 1979 Pope John Paul II visited Ireland it was the first ever papal visit to this most Catholic of countries at a mass for youth at Ballybrit Racecourse just outside Galway City the Pope proclaimed to the young people of Ireland that he loved them and the spontaneous outburst of joy this sparked in a crowd of 300,000 kids caused the pontiff to pause his sermon for several moments. Or rather, in 1979, it was a very devout country. By the time another pope came by, this time it was Pope Francis in 2018, such devotion was much harder to find. To me, the thing that most exemplified the new status of religion in Irish society in 2018 was a kerfuffle over how much it would cost. No one would have dared or even thought to question the cost to the Irish taxpayer of a visit from the Pope in 1979. And yet faith is still central to the Irish of Helen's time, albeit a more tolerant, more personal version. Helen's integration of faith into her daily life is inspiring in a year when we are all taking a second look at the things we took for granted? Oh, it's very important. I really feel um, without faith, you have nothing. Because sometimes when, you know, there's always some ups and downs in life and you pray, I always feel that, like if I'm nervous or upset about something and I pray, it eases my mind, I, I get relaxed. And I have great belief in God and the Blessed Virgin and all the saints. I pray to them every day for our safeties. I really feel that religion is very important. Like you feel so much better when you do that, when you go to Mass and pray and, and, and receive communion. It's very hard now with this virus. I pray to St. Jude when I lose something. Michael, he had a motorbike one time and he lived over in Elmhurst and 
he used to come here and sometimes he would leave keys or whatever here so he came here and he was looking for the keys for his motorbike he couldn't find them anywhere and he looked in his house and every place so anyway I told him to pray to St. Jude and I always promised him ten dollars I to send money to St. Jude so anyway when he went home the keys was on his steps the steps of his door going into his house <laughs> he could not believe it he said he could not believe it. St. <laughs> Anthony get a look in as well. When oh, yes. Yes, St. Anthony. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I don't know how we got like St. Jude, but like St. Anthony is supposed to be f- yeah. to find stuff. Yeah. St. Uh, Jude is the, the um, patron saint of hopeless cases. Yeah. <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably why, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely pray more for the safety and also that we don't get the virus. I say a prayer every day. It was really, um, it was so bad there in uh, in the beginning, or well, it was in, in, in a little bit into it, and it was really bad, and thousands of people dying. The only thing you could do was pray, you know? Coming up to Christmas in 1980, NYPD plainclothes detective Pat Ward a native of County Galway in Ireland, the last of the good guys he used to call himself, took a bullet while attempting to break up a robbery in a woodside saloon. After a lifetime in the States, the night her husband was shot stands apart in Helen's memories. The worst day was when my husband got shot. My husband was a policeman, and in 1980 he got shot, and uh, he he retired out of the police department. He, he had to get out because he, he had a wounded knee. He was a detective, and he was really, he, he didn't like to be indoors at all, so like, and he wasn't, I guess, physically fit to work outdoors, so he, he retired. 19 years on the job. Then in 2013, he passed away. It was in the 80s. Uh, my daughter had a sleepover party for her friends down in the basement. My daughter Rosemary, and one of the girls decided she wanted to go home. So anyway, he said he'd walk her home. So he walked her home. She lived on 56th Street, and he was coming up Roosevelt Avenue, and he happened to stop in Slattery's Bar. It was around the Christmas time. At that time, there was a lot of bars getting held up and everything. But anyway, he was there and those two um, men came in and they asked everybody, they had guns on them, and they asked everyone to uh, go to the bathroom and they locked everyone in the bathroom, including my husband. He felt he had to do something because they were out in the bar, you know, robbing whatever they could get money whatever he broke open the door and he came out and uh, they shot him in the knee and then he was on the floor and had the gun to his head but the bullet jammed in the in the gun and that's what saved him but he fired a shot and he got one of them in the shoulders so they flew out the door and they threw his stuff in the wastebasket. It was found on Skillman Avenue somewhere. 
and they headed for the airport. A call came that they were going to uh, some uh, other city. They were taking the plane and they were caught on the plane and they were brought back. And they were tried and got 25 years. And um, so uh, we never heard from them since. Wondering where he was and I was home and my other daughter Kathy was home and Rosemary was in the basement with her friends. And the next thing then, a police officer and a neighbor came to the door and they told me, oh, your husband got shot. He's been taken to St. John's Hospital. The chief of police came out and they got him into um, Bellevue because they said it was better for his condition, the, trauma, the wound and everything that had to be, you know, taken care of. He was there for about two or three weeks and he had a cast and then he was out of work for six months and he went back in light duty but then he got out. He retired. I didn't know what to do or where to turn. Policeman and the neighbor came by and they took me into the hospital to see him in Bellevue. When another policeman came in and stayed with the kids. But then the next day I started going into shock and I was shaking, I couldn't stop shaking. So I had a neighbor and she had um, a Valium and that helped. I just took one and that's all I needed. When I first heard I couldn't, like I was so busy figuring where he was and all of that. And so then after that, it wasn't too bad, but that was the worst. I'd say that was the worst day of my life, you know, the, that night and the next day, you know. The number seven line is one of the many train lines that make up the New York City subway system. It is the main artery for the Irish in Queens, for the newly arrived and the not so newly arrived. By the time it reaches Sunnyside, it runs high above the ground, interrupting conversations on the sidewalks below as it roars past a prairie of flat rooftops. It has shaped the Irish community for over a century, giving rise to apartment blocks, Irish bars and Catholic schools. At the very first stop in Queens, just seven minutes from Grand Central Station, the seven train arrives at a special happy place, the New York Irish Centre. I don't want to turn this into an infomercial for the New York Irish Centre, but let's just listen to how Helen describes it. The New York Irish Centre is a great place for the seniors to meet and we love going there every Wednesday, having the great lunch and then we also have a game of cards and seeing each other and talking with each other. After my husband died, this neighbor, Anne Walsh, her daughter, said to her mother and myself, oh, you should go down the Irish Centre, you know. And till that, I didn't know about it, like, you know. So this one Wednesday, I went down by myself. So I didn't know anybody. And the people were very friendly and, and the lunch was great. And the people that served the lunch and it was really wonderful. So then the next Wednesday, Anne and myself went. Then after that, we didn't even want to miss a Wednesday. We looked forward to every Wednesday going down because we met everybody and talked and had a good lunch and, and everybody was courteous to us and we really liked it. We enjoy going and all the different 
benefits and stuff that goes on. We almost liked Donny Carroll's fundraising and Kathy McGuire's concerts and all the different plays. And it's really a great place to go. And it was the only place like for like for an outlet for everybody that they could go and enjoy themselves. And there was always something to kind of to do, you know. And are you looking forward to when you can start going back? Oh, again? yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, I can't wait. I already went to the park a couple of times, which is great. That's great. But I'm not sure when they're going to open up again. Yeah, whenever. Right. Sooner the better. Yes, right? yeah. Sooner Everybody is looking forward to it. Okay. Everybody keeps asking. Yeah. Everybody stay in good health. So yes. Yeah, thank God back. none of us got it. None of the singers got the virus, thank God. Hi, this is Kathy, Helen's daughter. What resonates most with me about my mom is her gentle demeanor and her true optimism and her almost constant smile. She is definitely blessed with a happy gene. She is one proud Irish woman who also believes there are few things one good rosary can't fix. It is not lost on my siblings and I how special our mother is. We are so fortunate to have such a hardworking, kind, supportive, and loving Irish mom. Thanks for listening to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to keep in touch on social media at Centerpiece NY. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y. You can also visit us at centerpieceny.com. Email us at centerpieceny at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our interview with Helen Ward was conducted in October 2020, exercising all social distancing and safety protocols. We'd like to dedicate our first episode to two dear friends we lost this year, Mary McMullen and Tarlock McNeilis. The New York Irish Centre would like me to mention that it is the grateful recipient of grants from Ireland's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and New York City's Department for the Aging, along with fantastic community support from listeners like you.